Chapter 4 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear. Chapter 4 Telapalan, or. Are we to rot here forever? Jerking to his feet, Kennedy glared as if it were some contumacious obstinacy of his companion which still kept them prisoners. Six days had passed since Bjornson's visit, and brought no increase of knowledge nor change in their condition. Boots, whose wounds had closed with a rapidity that did credit to either an unusual constitution or the medicaments originally used, sat up lazily and stretched his arms. "'A few hours yet till night. Do you ever notice how still it all is, Mr. Kennedy?' "'Still as the tomb, silent as the desert.' I've thought of nothing but that silence for days. I wondered how long it would be before a glimmer of its meaning reached you. You have the unfortunate disposition to hold your thoughts till they sour on you. Never mind how thick my head is. Be kind to me, and say out the meaning, if you know it. I will if you'll shut up a minute yourself. The meaning is clear enough. It is simply that your dear friend Bjornson is a particularly effective and artistic liar that all this talk of Quetzalcoatl and Telapalan is so much empty rubbish. I told you in the beginning that there were mines in these hills. I'm doubly sure of it now. Let us suppose, what is probably true, that Bjornsson is a man well and unfavorably known by the Ruralis, and in consequence a man who doesn't dare apply to the government for a mining concession. Suppose, then, that he sees a certain opportunity in the current superstitions about these hills. What would be simpler than to strengthen them with the aid of a few white followers and a pack of hounds, and proceed therewith to make his fortune in safe secrecy? "'I can think of a lot of simpler things,' said Boots reflectively, though I'll not say you're wrong. But what's that, then?' He pointed to the polished white wall opposite the window. "'The back of a mining shack, maybe? It must be a magnificent fine one to be built of white marble.' That, Kennedy retorted, is part of the same ruins that his men brought me down through blindfolded that first night. I'll grant you that we are in a city of the Aztecs, or possibly of the Mayas, but it is a city as dead as the bygone civilizations of those races. Once out of this cell, and I promise you the sight of empty ruins and no more. You've got a good head on your shoulders, conceded Boots rather sadly. I misdoubt you're right. And here I'd hope to be seeing the strange wild city of a tale, with its priests and its multitudes bowing down to their poor false gods, and maybe a bloody sacrifice or so to make it the more interesting. For once the older man laughed, but it was a contemptuous merriment. From the curiosity of children and fools, good Lord deliver us. Bjornsson conjures up a frightful dream, and here you are ready to weep because it isn't real. Do you know the meaning of Telapalan? I've been trying to wring it out of you for a week, was Boots' bitter reply. In the old mythology of Anahuac, Telapalan was a city of white wizards. It was to rule this fanciful community that Quetzalcoatl deserted the Cholulans. In Yucatan they still expect him to return leading the magic race of white giants who are to restore all Mexico to the Aztecs. 
It was clever in Bjornsson to use that legend as a kind of scarecrow. His men are costumed to the part, and I dare say more than one Indian or greaser has been well frightened by them and the pack of hounds in their trail. What I appreciate, though, is his nerve in trying to put the illusion over on me. He didn't want to do it. He was deathly afraid we'd run across some of his stage settings before he got rid of us. When we did, he decided to take the bull by the horns and try to victimize us through our imaginations, just as he's done for years with the Indians. But what's he to gain by cooping us here? And what of the queer language they all speak? Aztec? You've heard it spoken in half a dozen Indian villages, but they give a queer twist to it here, which, I'll admit, deceived even me. They're some white hill tribe over which Bjornsson has got a hold, but take my word, the whole affair is a kind of elaborate hoax. For the rest, he has us here, and he doesn't exactly know what to do with us. I suppose some remnant of decency makes him hesitate at murder, and on the other hand, he's afraid to let us go. If you had only allowed me to kill him when I had the chance, we should be free men today. What are you grinning over now? Nothing, or just the astonishing difference betwixt a murder and a killing. If we leave here tonight, will you be content to do it without bloodshed? Kennedy brightened a trifle. You have a plan? I have me muscle, was the placid retort. If that fine actorman, Mr. Bjornson, believes me disabled entirely by a few small scratches, tis deceiving himself he is. I do hope the jailer he sends to feed us is an upstanding lad, for twould be shame to waste the return strength of me on a man of contemptible proportions. As Boots had once pointed out, the fact that they were given no light after sundown was no great deprivation, since they had nothing to look at but each other and the long empty day was more than sufficient for that. Tonight, however, it was a positive advantage. If they could not see their jailer, neither could he see them. On these occasions the door was never opened wide. There was a chain outside, restricting the aperture to a matter of a dozen inches. Through this the invisible one passed his burden—fruit always, corn-cakes, boiled beans or, more rarely, podrida of chopped chicken and peppers a plain but plentiful diet. For drink there was water and a kind of thin, Swedish beer, contained in the porous clay ollas that kept it cool. Kennedy had never made any effort to attack this provision-bearing visitor. For one thing there was the chain, and for another, except in the fury of being cornered, or with an overwhelming force to back him, he had not to any great degree the spirit that attacks. With boots on his feet again, the situation changed, and it was a pity for the jailer's sake that he could not know this. Nine times he had approached that door, done his benevolent duty, and departed unmolested, but on this tenth visit he met a different reception. Playing second part willingly for once, Kennedy received his instructions, and around ten o'clock the unsuspecting one came slapping along the alley on sandaled feet. Setting down his basket, he slid back the great bolt of solid copper, gave a warning rap, and pushed in the door to the length of the restraining links. As was his custom, before taking the fresh provisions, Kennedy thrust out the containers of the previous day, and this time he began with a water-jug, large and heavy, which he started to place in the waiting hands outside, 
Just as the groping fingers touched it, Kennedy let go. It was very neatly done. The jar, insecurely grasped, slipped and instinctively the hands made a downward dive to catch it. As the guard stooped, a long arm shot out, an elbow crooked about his lowered neck and for one astonished moment he was helpless. But Boots had got his wish. He had an adversary of no contemptible proportions, and that cramped grip through the doorway did not, could not hold. Even more quickly than Boots had expected, the man broke away, but meantime Kennedy's part was accomplished. Their hope had been set on the fastening of that chain. If it locked, failure was certain. It did not. The end was a great hook, caught over a ring-bolt in the wall. Kennedy's arm flashed out at the same moment with his allies, felt along the links, found the hook, the ring, his fingertips barely reached it, and just as the enemy jerked free with an angry grunt, the chain rattled and fell. When an Irishman charges, he flings himself, muscle and mind and spirit, in one furious projectile. The guard had scarcely straightened when his towering form crashed back, clean to the wall behind. It was all in the dark, of course. Whether he thought himself attacked by a man or a raging demon cannot be known, but though the breath had been knocked from his body by Boots' first rush, he rallied magnificently. The Irishman found himself caught in a clinch that was like the grip of a grizzly bear, and though his ribs were not pasteboard, they felt that awful pressure. His right forearm came up beneath the other's chin, jolting it back, and he tore himself free by main force. When the other giant lunged after him, he was caught in a cross-buttock that sent him crashing down on the bricks. But he was up with a resilience that Boots envied. For all his boast, the scarcely healed wounds he bore, coupled with nine days of inaction, had left the Irishman a good deal less than fit. And this jailer of theirs was a vast, dim, silent, forceful creature a pale shadow that, chest to chest, overtopped him by a good two inches, a terribly solid shadow of iron-hard muscles and a spirit as great as his own. For almost the first time in his life Boots tried to dodge an adversary's rush. That grip on his ribs had warned him. It was too dark for good footwork. Tripping over the basket of fruit he fell, and straightway an avalanche of human flesh descended upon him. Over and over they rolled, amid squelching oranges and bursting melons. Welded as in one figure, they rose and fell to rise again. Boots' ribs were cracking, and his breath came in hoarse gasps. Then one braced foot of the man he fought slipped in the mess of smashed fruit, and the slide of it flung him sideways. He recovered instantly, but no longer erect. Boots' left arm was locked tight around the small of his back, the right was beneath his chin. Gasping, choking, his back curved in an ever-increasing arc, he yielded to that relentless pressure on his throat. Back and back, sweat poured down the Irishman's face, and the blood from opened wounds ran over his body, but he had his foe now where he knew that nothing could save him. Bent almost double, at last the huge form suddenly relaxed. It was that, or a broken back. A second later Boots' knees were crushing the jailer's chest, his hands squeezing the last gasp out of his windpipe. "'That's the way, boy! Kill him! Kill him! Kill him!' The whispered snarl at his shoulder brought the Irishman to his senses like a douche of cold water. 
there was something about it so base, so bestial, as if the very lowest depths of himself, the depths that a real man treads under and keeps there, had been suddenly externalized and had spoken with the voice of Kennedy. He snatched his hands from the helpless throat. He rose, swift and silent. For one moment Kennedy was as near death as a man has a right to be, who whispers murder in a victor's ear. Then Boots remembered the poor thing Archer Kennedy was, and his great hands dropped. "'Get back in the cell,' he said quietly. Two men have been fighting here, and the air's not safe for the likes of you to breathe. Go!' And Kennedy went. Again the grass pallid in the corner was filled by a giant bandaged figure. This time, however, the mouth too was swathed, and the coarse strong strips bound arms and legs in a manner to preclude any possibility of movement. A stifled groan rasped through the dark, but no one was there to hear. Beside the dim white wall outside, two other forms walked cautiously along. "'It's a scanty outfit of garments I got from that lad,' grumbled a deep voice. "'I'd feel more decent to be strolling with a blanket to my back, as was my original intention.' A grunt was the only comment elicited. "'Feathers,' continued Boots, "'are fine in their place. For the decorating of hats, and for dusters, and for the wing of the bird they grew on, there's nothing more appropriate than feathers. But to string a few of them together, and hang them here and there on a person of good proportions like myself, why, to call it a complete costume is no less than exaggeration. Here's an end to our going, unless—yes, a gate there is, and praise be, no lock on it either. Now for your city of tombs and ruins. A pity it's so dark we won't see them," Boots finished. The alley, which had run straight between two high walls, ended in another as high. However, as Boots' words indicated, there was a gateway. The door that filled it, though not fastened, was astonishingly heavy. They had to put the strength of his shoulders to the pull before it swung slowly inward. "'Good heavens!' breathed Kennedy. Boots said nothing at all. He was entirely occupied with gazing. In the very first moment he knew that it was Kennedy's dead city of tombs and ruins which had been the dream, Talapalan, living and wonderful, the reality. But a city! Surely here was the strangest city that ever mortal eyes beheld. They had expected to emerge from that gate or near the floor of a valley. Instead, a straight drop of some hundred feet was below them. They had come out on a railed balcony, from whose built-up stairs of stone slanted down the face of an immense façade of sheer black cliff. They had thought to find night close and dark about them, but their view for miles was clear and the base of the cliff was lapped by the pale ripples of a lake of light. Wide and far extended that strange white sea. Its waters, if waters they could be called, were set with scores of islands. About it, like the rounded, enormous shoulders of sleeping giants, loomed the somber hills. The light of the lake was not glaring. It was more as if, when night swallowed the sun, Talapalan had held the day imprisoned in its depths. Every painted temple and palace of its islands, every gorgeous, many-oared barge and galley gliding across its surface, showed clear and distinctive hue as though the hour were high noon instead of close to midnight. Clear and strange, 
For one thing, there were no reflections. For another, the shadows were wrong. It was the underside of things that was brightest, the upper that melted into shade. The light was upside down. The sky, as it were, was beneath instead of above. Over all brooded that great stillness which they had felt in their cell, and interpreted as the silence of desolation. And yet it was not quite the perfect stillness they had thought, for a low murmur came up through it, like the rustle of leaves in a distant forest, or the murmur of waves on a far-off shore. On the many islands, amid gardens and beneath flowering trees, moved the forms of Talapalan's people but no separate voice raised in speech or song floated up toward the watchers on the cliff. The vessels of its traffic went to and fro, rowed by striped white oarsmen, who labored in an endless quiet. What lading did they bear across an inverted sky, between islands as splendidly colored as sunset clouds? A midnight traffic in dreams, one would think, through the floating city of a vision. Kennedy turned up from the rail. Far up on the cliff there they stood in a kind of spectral twilight. He saw his companion but dimly, a grotesque, gigantic figure, its huge limbs sketchily draped in a mantle made of strings of parrot feathers, that hid them none the better for having been through a wrestling match. Its height was increased by a helmet, shaped like the head of an enormous parrot and standing well out over the face. The golden beak of it curved down over the forehead, gaping, cruel, lending its sinister shadow to the face behind. And it stood so oddly motionless, that figure. Kennedy's glance traveled to the unearthly scene below and back again. He was swept by a horrible sense of unreality, of doubt. Was this his homely, tiresomely light-humored mate of the camp and trail? Or was it the thing it seemed the specter of some old Toltec warrior, massive, terrible, with folded, gory arms, gazing out to the fabled home of its blood-stained gods? The broad chest heaved in a sigh that sent a menacing quiver to the golden beak. From the shadow of the parrot-head there issued a solemn voice. "'Priests, did I say, and processions, and the poor commonplace of guilt idols? To the devil with them all!' Here's a sight worth owning two eyes for. Why, Shan McManus never saw the like of this when he spent twelve months in Blake Hill with the little people. Boots! exclaimed the other with a rather curious emphasis. Well? Oh, nothing. I wish you'd shed that helmet, though. It's absurd. I will not, answered Boots firmly. I do not know what it looks like, having seen it only in the dark but I feel that it lends me an air of becoming dignity, and moreover it is a part of me in disguise. Will you have us embark in one of those elegant boats we see, and myself with me bare red head shouting Irish to every beholder? Ask what you like, but not for one string of these feathers I was slandering, and which I now perceive will enable me to move in the ranks of fashion. Do you see that boatload yonder? Not a gentleman passenger but is feathered like a bird of the jungle. You'll notice, though, that the oarsmen are less particular. If you can't get a feather suit for yourself, Mr. Kennedy, you can shed what you've got and row. Are you actually insane enough to propose our hailing one of those vessels? 
Why, you great fool, they'd find you out in an instant. You can't even speak the language." "'I can shut me mouth,' was the placid answer. "'I've all the right plumage of a citizen. Should they discover me true identity, I'll grant you that a shindy may follow. But what of that?' "'Come or stay here, Mr. Kennedy. Tis a matter of indifference to myself.' A glance of mingled anger and despair was the sole reply, and when Boots set foot on the long stairs slanting lakeward, the older man made no motion to follow him. End of chapter 4Chapter 5 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear, Chapter 5 Gold. Archer Kennedy had two good reasons for failing to accompany Boots on his hare-brained expedition. One was the perfectly rational objection he had advanced that they would be found out and recaptured almost instantly. The other, though less rational, was far more powerful. It dragged him back through the gate before Boots had half accomplished his downward journey. Kennedy was afraid. He was afraid as he had never been afraid in his life before though he had experienced a warning thrill of it when Bjornson visited their cell and spoke of the gods and Telepalan. A mythical city, set in a lake of cold fire, where phantom galleys moved in majestic silence, had no place in his conception of the universe. He had no curiosity about it. He desired no more intimate knowledge. It was simply without a place. He was seized with a desperate desire to escape, not only from Telepalan, but from the very idea of Telapalan. As he plunged back through the valley, even the desert seemed a preferable memory to what he had just seen. Somehow he must make his way back to the ravine. Somehow he must provide himself with food, water, and a means to carry them, reach the gorge, and, by no matter how painful a journey, return to a sane and credible world. Coming to the cell of their recent confinement, he paused only to make sure by faint sounds through the window that the jailer was still a prisoner, then hurried on. In this direction also he found that the alley terminated in a wall and gate. The latter he opened with some difficulty, to find himself in a covered passage, dark as the pit and coldly dank as a cellar. As it extended in only one direction, at right angles to the alley, he had no trouble in choosing his way. Presently his foot struck on what proved to be the first step of a flight of stone stairs. This was encouraging. On that first night he had been led down many stairs. Very softly he crept up them, for silence could no longer deceive him with the assurance of being alone. He reached the top. It was blocked by a door, a wooden door that opened easily at a touch. Beyond it there was a light. Stepping through, he came into a bare, rectangular chamber, paved and walled with stone, empty and opening through an arch to some place from which light blazed, warm and golden, though from where Kennedy stood he could not see its source. In his mind he cursed it. Man or beast, your fugitive fears light as its revealing enemy. Yet behind him there lay only the cell, with its outraged and doubtless furious occupant, 
and that legward gateway which he longed to forget. Treading softly, he crossed the flagstones and crept along the wall. Very cautiously he thrust forward till his eyes just cleared the edge of the arch. Then, indeed, did he forget the uncomfortable weirdness of Talapalan. With his soul in his eyes, Kennedy gazed and gazed. Here was that which might wipe out a thousand unadjustable memories. Here was that which Kennedy understood and loved with a great and passionate affection. Here was gold. Tons of it. Though the worshipped metal was cast and carved in many shapes, it was not the workmanship that appealed to Kennedy, it was the stuff itself, the delightful yellow-orange surface, the rich look of weight and body, the feeling of warmth behind the eyes that reveled in it. Transcendent boldness welled up in Kennedy's heart, and Boots himself could have crossed that threshold with no greater a carelessness for danger. The room was lighted by four lamps, themselves suspended by massive yellow links and beneath their radiance the place was one of splendor and glory polished metal. The walls themselves were sheeted with beaten plates of it. Ranged on a stone shelf, running clear around the chamber, stood dozens of urns, vessels and vases of massive size and crude but effective design. Set about the floor were various larger objects, a thing like a baptismal font where the basin, as long as the body of a man, was supported on the back of three nearly life-size cougars, a throne-like chair, two or three chests of various shapes and sizes, some half-dozen five-branched candelabra, each one taller than a man and weighing more than any man could carry, all of gold, all of the metal itself, pure, divine, beautiful, without alloy so soft in its purity that Kennedy could mar the stuff with a reverent fingernail. There was a curious lack of care in the arrangement of these treasures. They were set about anywhere, anyhow, and the worn stone flags of the floor, the unbarred road he had come by, seemed to show that the chamber which held them was common thoroughfare for any feet that chose to pass. It was like the lumber-room of some public edifice, into which furnishings not in use are carelessly thrust till required. A lumber-room for gold. Kennedy's eyes glistened. Such cavalier treatment of the world's desire argued an astounding wealth behind it. At one end of the room was a second doorway. Before it there hung two curtains, black, straight, made of heavy cotton stuff without ornament austere in their splendid setting as the cassock of a Trappist monk at the court of a king. What lay beyond? What manner of building was this that stood on the cliff, high and far from the island palaces of the lake? A storehouse, perhaps? It seemed possible, probable. And this was only one room, and an outer room at that. What wealth, what incredible stores of jewels might the other rooms reveal? more gold, of course, and jewels. There was no sound anywhere. The curtains fascinated him. On venturous tiptoes, Kennedy reached them, parted them, hesitated a moment only, and passed through. Behind him the curtains fell together and hung straight as before, black and shabbily sinister, 
austere in their splendid setting as the robe of some inquisitor of old Spain. The confident security in his borrowed plumage displayed by Boots was more jest than earnest. Before quitting their prison he had washed and rebound two deep gashes which the combat had opened in thigh and shoulder. But since, barring helmet and mantle, the only garment worn by the jailer had been a sort of kilt made from soft cloth woven of cotton and feather-down, the white bandages, not to mention his other scars, seemed perilously conspicuous. Strings of parrot plumage were an inadequate concealment. Of course, there might be other wounded heroes mingling with the society of Telapalan, but Boots had a dark suspicion that gentlemen of his exact complexion and appearance were scarce enough there to arouse dangerous comment. For these reasons he meant to take a long and careful survey of the scene before attracting attention from any of the boatmen. Beside the larger vessels a few small craft were visible, canoes of one or more occupants, which darted and dodged here and there across the silver flood. A lone canoeman now should be more easily deceived, or overcome, than a whole barge-load. As he approached lake level, however, he met an unexpected hindrance to his purpose. The nearer he drew to that glittering expanse, the more difficult it became for him to see it. From above the view had been no more dazzling than is any common sheet of still water, just following sunset when the sky seems less bright above than in its mirrored reflection. But standing at the edge, as he presently did, the whole varied scene resolved itself into a molten glow that forced shut his lids and made him realize that the Telapalans must be possessed of optic organs as unusual as their habitat, unless they wore smoked glasses, a practice he had not noted. "'Twould be better dark,' thought Boots disgustedly, "'than a sight so bright you can't see it. Now what am I to do?' The stairs had ended at a broad floating stage, made of barked logs fastened together. As he stood on it, hesitating whether to wait till his eyes became more accustomed to the general brilliance or to give up the adventure as impossible, a slight thudding sound to the right reached his ears. By squinting desperately he could just make out the shape of a small boat of some kind. Then a low, clear voice murmured a sentence in the bird-like tongue of the Telapalans. Boots, taking emergency full face as was his custom, turned and walked boldly toward the voice. Dubious though he knew his position to be, there was no hesitation in either his manner or his stride. Boldness is often a saving quality, but in this case it was a mistake. Misled by that first thud, he had taken it for granted that boat and stage were in immediate juxtaposition. They were not. A good four-foot clearance intervened, and heading for the dark blur which was all he could see, Boots carried his confident bearing straight over the edge and down into the glittering flood beyond. An unexpected plunge-bath is always startling, but a plunge-bath in Telepolan proved to have qualities of shock so far beyond the ordinary that Boots forgot every consideration in the world except an overwhelming desire to climb out again. The instant his body touched the water it was as if his skin were being lanced by a million red-hot needles. A dip in boiling oil could hardly have been more painful. Straight down he went, 
to rise again so sick with agony that he could only clutch futilely at the air, and if left to himself his debut in Telapalan would have meant an exit from life. But the blade of a wooden paddle was thrust into his excited grasp, and he retained just sense enough to hang on to it. Swirled rapidly through the tormenting quid, his chest struck on something hard, and a second later he found his arms drawn up and over a rounded edge. It was the landing stage. Somehow he dragged himself out upon it. Though dripping wet and so weak that he lay prone for more than a minute, he realized that the pain had eased off at once. Maybe, he thought, once thoroughly boiled, a man's capacity for suffering ceases. Then he was gently prodded by a foot. Stand up! The voice of the invisible speaker lent a musical softness to the harsh English words. Also, it was the voice of a woman, and a young woman too, or Boots had never heard a young girl speak. Although in doubt if there were a whole square inch of skin left on him, he tried to obey. It proved astonishingly easy. The pain had entirely departed, and now he felt little worse than before the plunge. Some other quality of the water than heat must have caused his torture, and indeed it had been more likely a highly electrified bath than anything else. Except as a formless blur, he could make out nothing of his rescuer, and he prayed, though not hopefully, that she could see him no better. The parrot headdress was lost, and his borrowed feathers clung in bedraggled strings. Twenty is a self-conscious age where the opposite sex is concerned, and Boots felt that he cut a remarkably inglorious figure. Something was thrust into his hands. It was the lost helmet. "'Cover your head,' said the voice, which seemed to have taken command of him and the situation with the utmost coolness. "'Your hair is beautiful, but it is a wrong color. Among us no man's hair is so, so gay.' Only Tlatlan Quadizat Lapoca. He is red like you, but he is a god who has no sons in Tlapalan. Tell me, did you paint your hair so red because you are a son of Tlatlan Quadizat Lapoca? The father's name was O'Hara, blurted Boots, rather desperate. O'Hara? She pronounced it like two distinct words. He has no seat in Tlapalan. You shall bring him here and we will build him a red house, finer than the seat of Tlatlan Quetezatlapoca, who has no children. "'It's kindness self you are,' protested the bewildered one, "'but the poor man's dead.' "'Then he was not a true god,' asserted the voice disapprovingly. "'The true gods never die. You should forget him and serve another. Tlaloc is strong. Let your hair grow black again and become a son of Tlaloc. And why do you shut your eyes? Is it because the eyes of O'Hara are closed in death? Think no more of a dead god, but open your eyes and look at me." He grasped at the last arbitrary command as slightly more intelligible than the rest. "'With them open or shut, the beauty of you is equally hid from me. Tis the light that's to blame, not my will. Tis too glaring entirely.' That truthful statement seemed to puzzle his new acquaintance as greatly as her remarks had bewildered him. It was some moments before she could be convinced that superfluity of light was really blinding to this stranger from the outer world. 
that she knew him for a stranger had been evident from the first, and her calm acceptance, together with the excellent though slightly accented English she spoke, were as surprising as every other experience he had met in this home of surprises. "'If you really cannot see me,' she said at last, "'I will take you where the glory of Tanathiu, the sun-god, is not so great. Tanathiu sits in the roots of Tanathiudal to rest from his day's journey. His spirit flows out through the waters, and is brightest where it touches the shores of the land he loves. Around Tanathiudal itself the spirit is not so bright as here. I wonder if my lord Sven's eyes are as weak as yours. I must find out from Astrid. It is very interesting and curious. Come." Willingly enough, Boots accepted a guiding hand from this mysterious young person, and a few moments later was safely ensconced in the bottom of a fair-sized canoe, made of skins stretched over a bamboo frame. Had her words been a thousand times more incomprehensible, the risks involved incomparably greater, still Boots would have taken his chance and embarked in that canoe. But though he could make little of what she said, the girl seemed amazingly friendly, and altogether he felt that the adventure was going rather well. End of chapter 5「Citadel of Fear」by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear Chapter 6 The Black Eidolon A vast circular chamber, lofty as the rotunda of some mighty cathedral, vaporous with ever-rising whirls of pale mist, made visible only by the livid effulgence which sprang from a strange luminous expanse that was its floor. Having reached this place in his quest for carelessly stored wealth, Archer Kennedy halted and shrank back. Through the black curtains he had come into a series of passages, lighted by hanging lamps like those in that outer room. In the polished white walls of these passages there had been no doors, and he had followed on, growing more doubtful with each step, yet driven still by that powerful desire of his till he came down a flight of stairs that led to a lofty arch where he now stood, peering into the far loftier chamber to which it was the entrance. He had been seeking gold and jewels. Gold and jewels were here. Round the outer rim of the rotunda at floor level ran a ledge or walk, set at brief intervals with throne-like chairs, and every chair of them carved from virgin gold. In the white, curving wall behind them their reflections gleamed, like gold drowned in milk. High above the wall lifted an enormous dome, and through the vapors its vault glowed with sullen fires, scarlet, green, and azure, the glowing eyes of a million jewels set there. Opals all, those most living and unfortunate of gems. But Kennedy, lover of gold and seeker of jewels, gave their splendors hardly a glance. Wealth is very well but a man must have life to enjoy it. There was that here which might well rend Kennedy's from him. The place was shaped like a cathedral rotunda, but it was floored like, like nothing on earth that he had ever seen. A sort of unnatural marsh, or fen it was, where pale, slimy rushes grew thick out of steaming mire, and globular fungi shone with a livid, phosphorescent light. 
From its surface, mist wraiths rose continually, in twisting whirls and spirals, and the breath of it was dank in Kennedy's nostrils. Like a marsh in a dream it was, and its reality was the reality of a nightmare. But it was not that which Kennedy thought of in the first moment. Let a man, walking through the corridors of a public building, come suddenly upon the open gate of hell, alive with its demons, and his first emotion may well be dread of those demons, rather than wonder that hell should open here. The pale rushes and luminous globes were strange and repulsive as some new, dank circle of the inferno. But among them moved living shapes that crept and lurked, wolf-like, savage shapes that would have been snow-white save for the mire that plastered their silk fur. He had met shapes like those before. On that first night in the pass only Chance and his companion's stubborn effort at protection had saved him from being torn to pieces by such as these. "'The white hounds of the guardians! Here!' muttered Kennedy, and saw that around the marsh where they prowled there was no barrier. Like any common dogs, they had been instantly aware of his presence. Three of them came splashing and floundering to the very edge of the reeds, and meeting the savage hunger of their eyes, he expected the rush that would end him. But it did not come. He stood quiet, not from courage, but because he feared that at the first sign of flight the beasts would pursue. But as seconds passed and the white brutes kept inside the marsh's boundaries, nor made any effort to cross them, physical terror was engulfed by another sort fear. The intolerable strangeness of his discovery swept Kennedy like a flood. What place in nature had this domed-in, coldly steaming marsh, with its pale growth of rushes, its luminous fungoids, and wallowing wolf-like inhabitants? The very character of the beasts was an anomaly. Had they been reptiles, saurians, creatures of mire by birthright, they might have been terrible but in a comprehensive manner. But dogs! White hounds! In a sane world hounds are neither bred nor kenneled in a marsh. Yet there they splashed and prowled, swaying the rushes, emerging to glare with fierce, unfriendly eyes, or wallowing their silky coats anew in the softer mire around some giant, isolated fungus that was like a pale sphere of light. And those thrones! What inhuman sort of spectators were wont to sit there, and for the inaction of what incredible spectacle? Taken by themselves, one can tolerate a white dog, a white reed, or a phosphorescent fungus. Assemble them in mire, multiply them, surround them with golden thrones, and roof them with a jewel-lined dome, and the combination becomes... suspiciously weird. Suddenly the man knew that he had seen too much. He had feared the hounds and not dared to run from them. Now once more he feared a thought, and from that inescapable pursuer he did run, though not very far. Halfway up the stairs he halted and crouched, listening intently. From behind the arch came only an occasional splash or swishing of the reeds. From somewhere a sound dissimilar to those had begun, the first he had heard since leaving the valley of their former prison. It was a kind of slap-slap-shuffle-slap, a blurred, commingled noise that to Kennedy was anything but welcome. 
it meant that along these passages he had so stealthily traversed many sandaled feet were approaching. He straightened stiffly, elbows bent, hands clenched, and trembling like a man with the ague. He was caught. What would be the penalty he did not know, something vague and terrible? Those folk were no longer to him just buck Indians of a particularly light-hued type. They were the white people of Telepolan, the mystic people who in a sane material universe had no place. Crushed between two dreads, Kennedy stood and shivered. Slap, slap, shuffle. They were very near now. They were coming, solemn and slow. The very leisureliness of their approach seemed inimical. They knew he was here. They knew that he could not escape them. They knew. Turning suddenly, he plunged back down the stairs. His one instinct was to hide. Back through the arch he sprang. This side of the march there was no possible concealment, unless he should have chosen to join the wallowing hounds among the rushes. That scarcely appealed to him and he ran on round the curving rim, following the narrow path that intervened between the line of thrones and the mire. To his dismay, several of the marsh-hounds tried to follow. Had they leapt out on the stone rim, they could have outrun him easily enough, but not one attempted to do that. Floundering, splashing, they pursued in heavy, mud-hindered bounds, with ferocious eyes fixed always on the fugitive. He could not doubt that those silent, snarling jaws longed to rend his flesh. There seemed no barrier to prevent their reaching him, and yet his flight had half encircled the rotunda, and still not a paw had been set on the path he followed. Though seeking a place to hide, the terror of those lurching pursuers had kept his attention on the marsh. In consequence, he collided heavily with some large object that blocked the way and the breath was so thoroughly knocked out of him that he clung there a moment, gasping. Then he saw what from the rotunda's far side had been obscured by the vapors. Here the white marble ledge broadened before what seemed to be a deep, narrow niche. On the broadened ledge, outside this recess, ranged not carelessly but in decorously regularity of order, there were many more such golden vessels as he had seen in the outer room. The thing he had run against was another golden font, with its three nearly life-size cougars, and its basin long as the body of a man. Two other fonts, identical in appearance with the first, stood just beyond, and beyond them again the line of thrones was renewed and continued. On either side of the niche itself two great candelabra raised their golden branches, five to each that bore tall candles like those set to burn by the bier of the dead. The candles, however, were not lighted, and the depths of the niche they guarded were very dark. The rotunda was walled with blank white marble, but this recess in it had been built of stone dead black as unpolished ebony. The radiance of the fungi, diffused and made uncertain by mist-wreaths, hardly penetrated the black niche at all. Now, having looked for a place to hide, it seemed possible that he had found one, and yet he shrank oddly from exploring those dead black depths. Without reason, he felt convinced that there was something in there, something that lived. As has been hinted earlier, 
curiosity in Archer Kennedy was, as a rule, sternly subordinated to more practical considerations. Curiosity about a living something that lurked darkly behind a livid, unnatural marsh he found so easy to suppress that not even panic could at first drive him to investigation. The white hounds had ceased to give him any attention, and looking for them he found that he had this side of the marsh to himself. The uncertain light and the vapors prevented his seeing across it, but he heard the brutes splashing around beyond. They were making back toward the entrance, and he guessed why. Dogs ignore neither enemy nor friend, and even from where he stood there was audible again the steady shuffle of many approaching sandals. Again the fugitive looked to the niche, vainly trying to pierce its impenetrable gloom. As on the stairway, fear was driving him whither fear had shrunk from going, and, after all, how could there be anything alive in that niche? No sound of motion or breathing came out of it. Cursing himself for an imaginative fool, Kennedy tautened his nerves and made the forward step that set one foot on the black floor where it joined the ledge's whiteness. Then he stopped dead. No light was reflected from the depths. He had been very sure of that, and yet, in the instant when his foot crossed the line, he began to see. Unless there is black light as well as white, perceive may be the better term, but whatever the faculty so abruptly acquired, it at least gave a sense of vision and after an extremely vivid fashion. By it he learned that he had cursed his imagination unjustly, for something did really lurk in the narrow niche. It was a face. Though black as its environing gloom, it appeared to reflect no light. To Kennedy every feature of that dark countenance grew unforgettably distinct. It was not a good face. No evil, indeed, could have been too vile for its ugliness to grin at. A toad's mouth is wide, ugly, and rather funny. The mouth of this face was toad-like in width and narrowness of lip, but the grin of it was in no sense funny. A tense, cruel grin it was, that had never heard of humor. Cruel and monstrously alert. Alert stealth was in the very distension of the nostrils above it. The eyes were slits, but they were watchful slits. The whole face gave the impression of being thrust forward by a neck strained with eagerness, but the thread of it was not the clean thread of death. Had it witnessed torture, not the victim but the tormentor would have held its avid attention. Not pain but cruelty, not vice but viciousness, and the corruption of all mankind could hardly have stated its ambition nor the evil of a worldwide race of demons have quenched the desire behind its narrowed lids. Poised rigid, Kennedy confronted it eye to eye. His gaze seemed so fixed that it might never waver through eternity, and yet, without glancing downward, he became gradually aware that beneath the face was a body. He knew that the thing squatted naked and that the fingers clasped about its drawn-up knees were long and stealthy and treacherous. But for once Archer Kennedy felt neither dread nor the impulse to flee. Of what the face meant those fingers were only another adequate symbol, and the face drew him. In the natures of different men there are, as one might say, certain empty spaces, voids that long to be filled. 
so one craves beauty and another love, a third goodness, and a fourth perhaps mere lust of the senses. Meeting these, the emptiness is filled and the man is happy. So Kennedy. He had craved gold, but bait of that desire was another and deeper lack, an emptiness unknown and unacknowledged even by himself. The face filled it. Like a devout Buddhist, withdrawing his soul from earthly distractions, absorbed in contemplation of the mystic jewel in the lotus, so Archer Kennedy would have wished to stand there a long, long time, content, while the unguessed emptiness of him was filled at last. But following the rotunda's marble rim many feet were approaching, and in another moment the vapors would no longer shield him from discovery. End of chapter 6 Chapter 7 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear Chapter 7 The Cloak of Zolotl "'Tis the little lady of the fire-moths!' Boots knelt up straight and beamed upon his vis-a-vis -vis like one who welcomes an old acquaintance. Impelled by a deft and vigorous paddle, the canoe had swiftly left the landing-float, shot across what seemed a wide band of blinding fire, and now, some hundred yards from shore, Boots found the radiance much less intolerable. In fact, he could see very well, and his first glance was not for the islands nor the island craft but toward the girl who had apparently taken him under authoritative protection. "'If you jump about so, we shall be upset,' she admonished him. "'I'll not move a finger more,' cried Boots, "'for I can think of nothing more misfortunate than to end an acquaintance before it is fairly begun. Did you know me at first sight, then, as I knew you?' She tried to look serious and demure, but the effort ended in irrepressible merriment. Oh, she cried softly, how could one help but know you? You are, you are so different to look at from my brothers of Telepolan. Self-consciousness claimed him again, and if his face was red before, it was flaming now. The costume of your country is a fine, handsome selection, but maybe it's not so becoming to an Irishman. But I like you different. I would have you tell how it is, though, that you are wearing Zolotl's head and his cloak of honor. Did he give them to you for friendship? You might say so. Boots surmised that Zolotl was the vanquished jailer, and caution seemed advisable. Then a gleam in those amused dark eyes warned him. You know otherwise, he accused. I hope that you did not kill him, she answered reflectively. If you killed him, being a stranger, they may give you to Nakak Yaatl. Did you kill him?" Had she been asking the time of night, the question could have been no more indifferent. "'No,' said Boots, shocked into curtness. The mischievous smile flashed across her lips again. "'Then I shall laugh at him. Zolotl is a boaster. He thinks he should run the hills with the guardians. But he is only a small boy, grown tall and large. Some day, since he is not dead, and when he has finished his novitiate to Nakaki Otto, I shall—what is my lord Sven's word? I shall marry him. 
but I shall always laugh because you took away his cloak of honor." With another mental gasp, Boots attempted changing the subject. "'It's fine English you speak. You maybe learn from Mr. Bjornson?' "'Oh, all of my guild speak English. When I was only a little baby, my lord Sven came. Though he was a stranger, they spared him because of his wisdom and his knowledge of the gods. It had been thought that the gods were forgotten save in Telepalan, but he spoke our tongue and later he mated, married, with a daughter of Quetzalcoatl. That brought him into our guild, though for some strange reason he will not live in Telepalan, but built him a house in the lower valley. Very soon it became—what was that phrase of Astrid's? Oh, yes, all the rage to use English. The other guilds have picked up a little, too, but we never encourage them. Don't you think it sounds much more distinguished than the old-fashioned tongue?" "'Maybe. But when you speak your own language it sounds like a bird singing.' "'But birds are so common, aren't they? See, there is Tanathiutl. If you do not care to serve Tlaloc, become the son of Tanathiu, who is sometimes as red as your beautiful painted hair.' Then perhaps I shall marry you instead of Zalotl." She said it with the air of one bestowing some incredible hope of favor, but things were moving a little fast for Boots. Lovely though she was, here cold-blooded reference to poor Zalotl's demise, and her equally cold-blooded annexation of himself, went clean outside the Irishman's notions of propriety. "'I'll think of it,' he muttered and for the first time really gave heed to his surroundings outside the canoe. They had come well out on the liquid silver shield beneath which, according to the faith of Telepalan, Tonathiu, the sun-god, lurked throughout those hours when the rest of the world was dark and deserted of his spirit. Therefore, at night and through night only, they gleamed like Mezcli the moon and were terrible to touch as the superheated body of Mictlantelukli, Lord of Hell. So Boots was informed, as he gazed with great curiosity, at the god's house. It was the first heathen temple he had ever seen where the worship was living, and not a mere dusty memory of the past. Tonathiutl, smallest of the islands, was also nearest to the shore they had recently quitted. Unlike the others, it was low and flat and the round structure which almost filled its circumference stood scarcely ten feet high. Nothing showed above the walls, and Boots, who had noted it from the cliff, recalled that the roof was flat as a pancake. It was all built of something that he took for brass, though Kennedy, had he been present, would have better judged the metal's value. Doors and windows there were none, save one low-arched aperture, and altogether it did not in the least fit with Boots' idea of a temple. "'It goes down,' explained the girl. "'What you see is only the top. It goes far down, and there, below, Tenothiu slumbers in the midst of a circle of his priests. Should one, even one, of his sons sleep in these hours, Tonathiu would never climb the heavens again. He would die. Then Talapalan and all Anahuac, Mexico, would perish in a darkness having no end. Is that not terrible fear? If you become a son of Tanathiu, you must never sleep at night. Do you ever sleep when you shouldn't?" More often than not, Boots hastily assured her. 
whatever force it was that charged the waters, even his elementary knowledge of astronomy sensed a discrepancy between her vision of Tanathu's habits and the actual facts. But he could see no profit in arguing the matter, and just so he kept clear of any promise likely to involve him in strange religions, he was content to accept her statements as they were made. "'Here come Topilzen, Nakakiato's master-priests,' she suddenly announced, pointing to a galley of twenty oars which at this moment surged majestically past. "'Look! There he stands near the bow, with the others crouched down around him. Tell me, is he not a fat, ugly, disagreeable old man?' The individual in question, who stood pompously erect in the midst of an adoring circle on the quarter-deck, his fat paunch covered by a white and black emblem, draped in a feathered mantle of black, white and green, might almost have heard the girl's remark. He whirled sharply and glared toward their canoe, with pudgy mouth pursed and scowling brows. "'Are you not afeard to speak of your priest so disrespectfully?' queried Boots. She shrugged with high disdain. "'I am a daughter of Quetzalcoatl. My head need not bow to those of the lesser guilds. Did you see him look at you? He knew you for a stranger. If he dared, he would take you for the mysteries. But fear nothing. You are with me, and Quetzalcoatl guards his own. Even Nakak Yaotl cannot take you from me. Or I think he could not.' She looked back toward the cliff they had left, and Boot's eyes followed hers. Now he saw what nearness had before shut from him. The dead black rock was topped by a long, even wall of white stone. Above it rose the pale heights of a stupendous building. In that building he and his mate had been imprisoned, and it seemed strange now to Boots that this had been so, well-nigh impossible that for nine days they had dwelt in that vast place, and remained as unconscious of its vastness as are coral insects of the mighty reef they inhabit. It was a structure so large, so ruggedly massive, as to suggest one of nature's rock castles, though its lines were too regular for that. Like the Temple of the Sun, it was blank of windows, but unlike that smaller temple it was neither round nor flat-roofed. A hundred turrets crowned it, and out of the very midst of them there curved a titanic white dome. The dome form is one of the glories of architecture, but this one distinctly failed of beauty. It was squat, ugly. It was as though the round top of an incredibly large white fungus had sprouted among the turrets and been allowed to remain because of its bulls and inaccessibility. But the whole structure was in some indefinable way oppressive. It had not been for fear's sake that Boots had left it and descended to the lake but now, without knowing why, he felt sure that his course had been wiser as well as more reckless than Kennedy's. Kennedy had returned into those blind, white depths. That foolish, protective instinct of Boots rose up at the thought. No matter what else Kennedy was, he was a poor, weak thing, and Boots' mate. Should he go after him? Better get the good of some information first. He asked the building's purpose. That is the seat of Nakak Yaotl. A somber look shadowed the girl's mischievous face. Nakak Yaotl, the black maker of hatreds, who would destroy mankind if he could. 
Some day they say that he will destroy Telepalan, but I do not believe it. Our lord of the air, Quetzalcoatl, who was once human and is noblest of all the gods, is stronger than he. How they must hate each other, those great strong gods! Would you not like to watch a battle between gods? "'Twould be a destructive spectacle. Watch yourself. Watch out!' His shot of warning came barely in time. With two swift thrusts of her paddle, the girl shot them out of the path of a galley of twenty oars. It swept on by, and from near the bow glared Nakak Ya'atl's master-priest, thwarted malice in every line of his fat, furious face. "'He did hear you,' cried Boots, "'and the old devil tried to run us down!' The girl's face was sternly calm, but her eyes blazed with a rage more deadly than the priest's. "'I meant he should hear me,' she said quietly. "'Topiltsen is the mortal father of Zalatl, whom I despise.' The galley had wheeled again and was heading back toward them. "'Paddle,' urged Boots desperately. "'Paddle, or let me!' He stretched out a hand, but the girl only shook her head and watched the oncoming galley with quiet scorn. "'Now you will hear him apologize,' she said. "'It was an accident for which the poor steersman will suffer. I am a daughter of Quetzalcoatl, who guards his own, and even Topiltsen will not dare admit that attack was intended. But had we been cut in two, as was meant, you would have died.' and I would have been let suffer the pain of Tanathiu's spirit for more than a little before they picked me up. Oh, I hate Zalatl and all the black god's cruel guild! Son of Ohara, I wish that you had slain Zalatl! Faith, I'm beginning to think you've cause to wish it. Look at the old fat villain bowing there!" The galley's rowers were resting on their oars. Every face on board was turned toward them and the master-priest himself had crossed the quarter-deck and bent his head with a respect rather mocking under the circumstances. This was Boots' first view at close range of any of the men of Telepalan. They were all white men, whiter than himself, to speak the truth, and yet, by certain subtle differences, Boots was quite sure they were not white men in the generally accepted sense. Whether or not Kennedy was right to call them Indians, they were certainly of another than the Caucasian race. Straight black hair fell to their shoulders from beneath various fantastic headdresses, fashioned to represent brightly colored beasts and birds. Such garments as they wore were of gaily-hued cotton cloth, or the same downy feathery stuff that the moth-girl was dressed in. Feather mantles, like the one Boots had borrowed, were worn by all save the rowers, whose attire was restricted to a broad girdle or a kilt. Black-browed, straight-nosed, broad of shoulder and well-muscled, they were as fine-looking a set as Boots had ever set eyes on, and no more comparable to the common Indian tribes of Mexico than a Japanese of the samurai caste to a low-class Kolarian. In the matter of athleticism, however, Topilt Sen was an exception. He was a short, fat, pudgy little person and the black scowl he wore now did not add to his beauty. When he spoke it was in that hushed tone used by all in Telepalan, as if it were some vast hospital in which the patients must on no account be awakened. "'Speak English,' the girl interrupted curtly. "'My friend here, the son of that great and powerful god, Ohara, 
does not use our tongue." The priest straightened and stared balefully at the son of O'Hara, more balefully at the girl. His English was bad, and she knew it. A petty embarrassment to put on her future father-in-law, but everything counts in war. Where? said the priest, slowly and painfully. Zolotl. The head. The cloak. I see. Look hard. No, Zolotl. Breaking off in despair, he waved expressive hands toward Boots. You mean, I suppose, the girl was loftily superior, that you would have run us down in order to see if my friend here was Zolotl? Yes, it is the head of Zolotl. It is the cloak of Zolotl, but my friend is not Zolotl. He is a man much stronger and more courageous, and that is why he wears Zolotl's cloak of honor. Look very close indeed. You quite see, do you not?" But that insolence was too much for Zolotl's father, who understood English better than he spoke it. With a snort of rage he whirled and addressed a hushed command to someone behind him. Instantly a man sprang to the side. The girl dipped her paddle in earnest now, but too late to avoid the fling of a small grappling-iron which fairly caught their bow. Hand over hand they were hauled ignominiously in, while Topiltsen, no longer obsequious, grinned at them in obese triumph. It occurred to Boots that the might of his arms was going to be of more immediate service than any protection Quetzalcoatl or any other of Tlapalan's numerous gods seemed likely to offer. End of chapter 7「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.